but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Casper is one of the most genuinely joy-filled humans that I've had the pleasure of knowing. I first came across his work through the publication How We Gather, and later listening to his Harry Potter podcast and learning about his work at the Sacred Design Lab, which is this fascinating design consultancy that works to create a culture of belonging and becoming. In this wide-ranging conversation, we do a deep dive into his new book, The Power of Ritual, which should be out the day this episode airs. For me, it was honestly a perspective-shifting and just heartwarmingly beautiful book on discovering the sacred amidst everyday life and seeing the world through the eyes of ritual. We talk about some of his early experiences as a climate activist and how this unexpectedly led him to study at Harvard Divinity School. And from there, how he kind of broadened the definition of what it means to be spiritual and why he loves this idea of liturgical time that I hadn't heard of before and what he considers to be some of the enemies of ritual and how we might go about designing some of our own amidst the lockdown. I also inquired about how on earth he's managed to take a full secular Sabbath day away from work for the last four years and some of his all-time favourite Harry Potter scenes. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation even half as much as I did. And if you do, please send thoughts or reflections to either of us on Twitter or email if you feel so inclined. Okay, without further ado, enjoy this feast of a conversation with Casper TK. So hello, Casper. It's lovely to have you here. And I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Um... And as you might know, these conversations don't usually follow any kind of linear path. But <laughs> in preparing for this, I felt I felt like I was at the beginning of this, like a choose your own adventure game with so many different directions. <laughs> but I would like to start with a question that has become in itself something of a ritual for this podcast. And the question is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you maybe share a story about something that you were curious about? Mm, well, thank you so much for having me, Johnny. I, I'm a big fan of your work, so I'm really, really pleased that we get to to sit down today. Um, I mean, I was definitely described as curious, <laughs> like a strange, a strange <laughs> child. In, in I'm sure all of us were in some way uh, unusual, but um, I was definitely always really interested in old things. Um, I was. I grew passionate about heraldry mm. around the age of 10 um, and heraldry for the uninitiated <laughs> are the kind of, you know, sigils and uh, 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 kind of shields that you'll see from kind of ancient, you know, European families. And uh, when you look at family trees, you always, you often see kind of illustrations with their, with their family crests. Um, and uh, there's a whole language mm. there's a visual language in heraldry of, you know, uh, different colors mean different things, different uh, signia, you know, whether it's a, a type of bird or a type of arrow, that they all represent things. Um, and uh, I grew very, very interested in, <laughs> in, in heraldry. And it's still the thing that I love to look at. You know, you'll see it sometimes in church buildings, the patrons will be commemorated with their little family crest mm. and things. Um, so uh, yeah, 
that's, that's, that was one of my unusual interests as a child. <laughs> Interesting and kind of unexpected. Um, did you have any, any favorite books or stories that come to mind? Um, and, and maybe is there a way that the, the narrative of the book might be in some way connected to your current life's purpose or, or mm. You know, I, I was famous in my family for saying around the same age, books are for nerds and that I hated reading, which is very strange now because I'm, I, I, huh. take, <laughs> I take great pride in the, <laughs> yeah, in the, in the uh, very avaricious kind of consumption of books. Um, but I did read over and over sure. again, um, basically every Agatha Christie book that existed. And uh, when you came into my, <laughs> into my dorm room in the boarding school that I went to, um, you know, everyone else had kind of pictures of half naked supermodels and, and cars and all sorts of things. And then my corner was mm -hmm. filled with Agatha Christie books. And I, I think part of what that was about was wanting um, control. You know, the Agatha Christie books are very, very mm. similar in length. They're similar. Obviously, the plot is always different, but you know roughly the structure of the book um, before you open it, which is one of the very mm. comforting things about it. And I think probably at that age, you know, as a queer kid who wasn't out yet in a boarding school context, it was it was a difficult mm -hmm. time for me. And I felt very kind of isolated and and like I wasn't in control of my experience day to day. So I think my, my reading habits probably were mm. an element of trying <laughs> to express that sense of predictability. Mm. Interesting. I, one, of the, one of the things that I found fascinating to read was that when you arrived at, at that dorm room in Harvard Divinity School, you didn't think of yourself as spiritual. And so I guess I was interested in like, what on earth drew you there in the first place? And secondly, what kind of shifted for you? Um, along the way? And, and do you feel like maybe there's a connection between curiosity and spirituality? Yeah, so, the, but kind of the decision to go to divinity school many years later was uh, was definitely a, a jump. I'd grown up completely non-religious, really. I, I, I didn't have any kind of, you know, my parents didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who were religious. It was, it was just absent from my life. Um, and I never expected to end up spending so much of my time thinking about religion. But what drew me to the divinity school mm. was honestly a frustration with a lack of answers <laughs> from the other places that I went looking. Um, mm. I, I'd been really involved in um, climate change activism as a young person. So I was very involved in mobilizing young people around the United mm. Nations negotiations um, around the climate treaty. Uh, and what I learned from that experience was that, you know, an issue like climate, which is global in scale, which is delayed and often hidden in its impact, uh, at least from a kind of Western world perspective, um, that it's not just a question of, of having the right policy and then implementing it. It's not even a question of kind of, you know, fighting for the political battles. And once you're in power, being able to implement a, a, a policy, it's really about a paradigm. Um, so if we're living in a world where we think of ourselves as separate from nature, if we think of ourselves as endless mm -hmm. consumption, you know, uh, on, on a planet that is finite, we cannot even think of the right policies, <laughs> let alone have the, have the politics to implement it. Mm -hmm. So I became more and more interested in how, how do we shift paradigms? Um, and 
the the thing I kept coming up against was like, well, religions have thought about that for a long, long time. So I entered divinity school as like a gay atheist, <laughs> thinking that I would like learn <laughs> about religion and then sneakily adapt the bits that were useful and then like run away back to my activist life. Amazing. But what ended up happening was much more <laughs> of a transformation, you know, the, the sense of re like reinterpreting the experiences that I already had through a new frame. Um, and mm. so I suddenly looked back at my childhood and mm. I said, wow, yeah, I didn't, you know, believe in anything, but actually we practiced a whole bunch of things. There were all of these rituals in my home life, in my school life, in the Waldorf, uh, the Steiner school that I went to as a child, that there was really rich, rich activity oh. that now I look back on it and I was like, oh gosh, that is kind of religious. Um, so it ended up totally shifting how mm. I thought about my own life. Mm, I love that. And as you were describing that, I was thinking of the phenomenon of the, the overview effect yes. that astronauts get when they kind of leave the Earth's atmosphere and they, and they look down and they see the Earth as a whole. And that's in some ways has also been my kind of mm. gateway to this, um, this world of spirituality and just this acceptance that we are part of this greater whole and this kind of universal consciousness in some ways. And I've, I've, I was kind of asking because I, f I feel like my metaphysical beliefs have also shifted in the last maybe three to four years mm. from also being a very kind of proud atheist to someone <laughs> who has this deep reverence of the great mystery and of universal consciousness. And mm. I think if I was to have a conversation with myself at 20, it would be, it would be really interesting. Um, would you, <laughs> it would, yeah, I mean, kind of bizarre in some ways. And w were there any, were there any like standout moments for you when you, you kind of realized that you were part of something greater than yourself and did that come from a kind of climate lens or i'd be curious mm. if, if there were any like pivotal moments it's such a good question johnny because i think in some ways i've i've always had this sensibility even as a child but i didn't have a language in which to express it so i remember distinct moments you know i was 11 i was at my first kind of sleepover summer camp which was more than a few days and there was this ritual that ended the 10 days camping together you know like in a forest in tents um and it was this moment in which you are kind of welcomed um into the into the group of people who have gone through this camp right so it's kind of this great kind of momentous honor um and there's all sorts of rumors that go around the campsite in the days before you know that that they use a real sword to kind of knight you and you have to put socks on your shoulders under your shirt to make sure you don't get bruised by the sword you know it's all very intense and you're 11 and it's quite scary um, and what I remember of that night, you know, you're, it, it was kind of getting dark and you're walking uh, on your own on, along this path and there's little tea lights either side. And you're walking towards singing that you can see, that you can hear in the distance, you can see a fire that's kind of blazing. And then, you know, you arrive into this clearing and there's these uh, two lines of, of all the leaders of the camp standing in front of you and they're all holding these old flags as my sigils again and and as you walk towards them one by one those flags kind of lift up in front of you as you walk towards the fire and there, standing in front of the fire is you know the camp leader and indeed there is a, a I'm not quite sure if it was a big stick probably was a big staff um, with which you are kind of knighted and welcomed you know in, into this into this circle of people around mm -hmm. the campfire but like I I remember that a kind of outer body experience. I can, I can see myself in the experience even now. Mm. And so there were moments like that mm. where, where I felt part of something mysteriously bigger, 
but I, I, I didn't have the words to describe it. And I think maybe that's one of the gifts of, of mm-hmm. tradition is that we teach one another a language with which to make meaning of the moments that mean most to us uh, in, in our human experience. Because at least mm. for me, I don't live in that consciousness all of the time. Honestly, I'm pretty self-absorbed and <laughs> like, <laughs> thinking about my bank balance or you know the, the to-do list. I'm, I'm not. I'm not very good at like. I have friends who can just inhabit that world. Uh, that is not me, which is probably why I need mm. all these practices <laughs> to, mm. <laughs> to help me get there. But th- th- interesting. But I do think that, that one of the challenges for us today is that you know, as more and more of us are less and less religious, we don't really have the shared words anymore mm. to, to help to help illustrate those moments for each other. Mm. I love that. And um, as we were saying just before we hit record here, I absolutely love your new book, The Power of Ritual. Mm. And I've devoured it over the past week. And for me, I kind of love how it dances between like the profound and the practical. And there were some paragraphs that I felt myself like literally getting chills as I was reading through. And that doesn't, that hasn't happened for a while. And I was kind of reflecting on where that might come from. And I was thinking how a good, for me anyway, a good nonfiction book can impart the useful information. But I think the books that really like leave their mark are those that kind of gift you with new perspectives to see the world through. And I think of James Cast's Infinite Games or mm. Alexandra Horowitz's On Looking. Um, but I, I, f- I feel like in your case, it was like you kind of gifted me with this new lens through which I could see the default habits in my life and almost like a toolkit to infuse mm. them with more intention and reverence. And so I'd, I'd love to hear from you. What, what would you say was your, your biggest intention with writing and publishing this book and maybe what are some of your hopes for how it might impact the lives of the people who who read it Mm. well first of all johnny i I really really appreciate that like that someone like you would like (laughs) the book that i've written makes me very very happy so and and honestly it, it it speaks directly to my biggest hope that the book gives gives its readers a sense of spiritual confidence um i i I think so many of us have moments where we feel connected, you know, maybe deeply to ourselves or the world around us or other people or, you know, something bigger than ourselves. Um, And often those moments can kind of be fleeting. And my hope is to help us all recognize that, you know, although beautiful, you know, big pilgrimages or or beautiful cathedrals can be wonderful things to experience, it's often in the everyday habits and routines that that we can find mm-hmm. the foundations for spiritual practices. Um, I'm, I'm definitely on the kind of mm-hmm. uh, the everyday practical side of things, exactly as you said. And so I was really interested in mm-hmm. looking at the things that we're already doing, you know, whether that's taking some time to, to journal once a week, um, whether it's kind of, you know, thinking about our intention for the day when we're in the shower, whether it's lighting candles at the dinner table, mm-hmm. you know, all, all of these things that are very every day in scale, nonetheless have these echoes of rich religious traditions that can help us live lives of meaning and purpose. And so the, the kind of the, t- the tone of the book is really to affirm the things we're already doing, and then to invite us to learn mm. from, from these traditions, to re-examine or reframe uh, those daily habits so that they can become spiritual practices. Um, and so that that's my hope, really, is that mm. that, that people will feel emboldened and um, encouraged uh, to to think of their life in this new way. Mm. 
That's lovely. And for me, I think of ritual as being almost like a form of wizardry and this, <laughs> this like process of alchemy mm. for infusing meaning into these everyday yes. habits, like, like you said, and m- maybe it would be helpful. It could be helpful for listeners to, like, to maybe define ritual and your, your framework for how we should yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's funny, isn't it? We use that word in, in a lot of ways, kind of similarly to habits, like, oh, it's my daily ritual. And it's like, well, what, what does that really mean? So right. for me, a habit is something, you know, that, ha- that has an obvious purpose, like brushing your teeth, for example, or commuting to work, or, you know, that, that there's, mm-hmm. there's things that we do in our lives that are patterned, um, and that achieve an obvious outcome. If you think about a ritual, It's still patterned, but this time um, it often has a sort of, uh, it represents something. So you're giving something an outer structure of an inner change, an inner change of state, for example. You're giving outer expression to Mm. to something that might be invisible. Outer structure, inner state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to to give you an example, um, you know, it it might be something as simple as... um, you know, we're all very familiar with weddings uh, and and the the placing of a ring on a finger. So that that's an, an outer representation of an of an inner commitment, right? That you are going to be partnered with this person, mm. depending on your vows, as long as you both shall live. Um, and you know, that's something that we all recognize, and that's it's a it's a kind of a one off ritual that's that's very uh, uh, very large in its status. But there's also all, all sorts of smaller things. I think about the you know, the way, especially maybe now, kind of during quarantine life, I know I know a lot of people are kind of changing their clothes in the evening or maybe have like a special mm-hmm. pair of weekend shorts mm-hmm. because we're in the same place so much of the time. <laughs> you have to mark a change of kind of now is work time, now is non-work time through some other means. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I notice people are doing that by, by wearing different kinds of clothes. Um, so you see all of these kind of the, the, these rituals, but there's more about rituals that we often don't even think about, which is that rituals often embody a set of values or a sort of a story about our life or a myth. You could even say um, Joseph Campbell, the, the mm. famous mythologist, mm. talked about rituals as retelling a story every time we practice them. So the rituals that we choose oh. actually shape us in some really fundamental ways. And it's why I think it's so important that we think about what rituals do I want to strengthen and support in my life? Because they're actually a way of forming yourself to become the kind of person that you want to be. And, and if we're not intentional about it, I think it's very easy to participate in rituals that might make us into the kind of person that we don't want to be. Um, so Dacher Keltner, mm-hmm. who's a, one of the leaders of the Greater Good Science uh, Center at, at UC Berkeley, talks about rituals as a, as a patterned way uh, of kind of embodying values. Um, so, so nearly always these things that look very innocuous actually have this much, much bigger arsenal of values behind them. Mm, That's beautiful. And something I think I really appreciated from your book was this, this kind of slight reframe of defining what it means to be sacred and changing it from being an adjective (laughs) to a verb. And it's almost as if we are like sacreding and we're, and and we're we're doing it by bringing our intention and and our attention to it. And you, you wrote that like the number of occasions that we have that we we like deem worthy of this are embarrassingly small, which (laughs) I thought was hilarious and I really resonate with. And so I'm, I'm interested in what are some of like the, the quirky or maybe delightful rituals that you came across in your research for this book, the kind yeah. of 
embody what it is that you're talking about this idea of like sacreding or something well i just want to echo what you were just saying that that was one of my big learnings from divinity school that just blew my mind you know i'd always grown up thinking that some things were sacred some things were profane right and that's just the way that probably the, the catholic church had told us <laughs> like this very kind of static understanding <laughs> yeah, right. of the world and and again you know as a gay uh -huh. person I, I inherently had rejected yeah. a lot of that um but for me to, to understand yeah. th this process of like hey what makes a text sacred isn't at least in my theological understanding isn't some sort of god in the sky you know with a magic wand saying well this is you know i'm gonna i'm gonna channel you and you're gonna write this down and it's now a sacred text um although you know some people may believe that for, for me what makes a sacred for me what makes a text sacred is when a community says it's sacred you know, so it's it, it's when we get together and say, no, this is what we're going to treat with reverence and attention and intention. This is what we're going to come back to time and time again, um, to to listen to what it has to tell us, to meet one another in the conversation around this this text. Um, and it it gave it, you know it's such a democratizing mm. instinct to think about, you know, mm. we we get to choose, and therefore <laughs> if we don't choose. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll still be treating something as sacred. One of the things that I always remember was a classmate saying, you know, we all worship something. We, we just don't always know what it is. And I think especially in a kind of consumer capitalist context where what maybe one of the biggest habits that we have is literally buying things that we kind of worship at the altar of consumption, mm. um, unless, unless we're intentional about that. <laughs> so really affirming that that was a, a, a major kind of shift for me in, in how to think about sacredness, but maybe using text as an, as an example, one of the, one of the things that we, I definitely noticed in my, uh, in my time before writing the book was how we turn to our favorite books over and over again. Um, and particularly in the world of mm -hmm. Harry Potter, which is one I've become very familiar with, you know, that is a fan community <laughs> that has been, yeah. you know, amazingly productive and connected and committed to this text for more than 20 years now. Um, you know, the amount of fan fiction that's still written, obviously there's been the movies and there's been musicals written and there's been illustrations and, you know, all sorts of uh, exciting and sometimes bewildering uh, kind of romantic fan fiction. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, and, and, and even identity <laughs> language, right? If I ask someone, well, what house are you in? Even without oh. referencing Harry Potter, they'll probably mm -hmm. say, well, I'm a Ravenclaw. You know, it's, it's so, so in our cultural imagination, um, the, the, the narrative of Harry Potter. Yeah. And one of the things we noticed over and over again was how people, especially in a hard time, right? Maybe, maybe they've had a breakup. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Um, or maybe they're just, you know, feeling, feeling sad or depressed that they, that they turn to a book that they love to reread it. And um, I ended up working with a, with a friend of mine from Divinity School to create a reading group originally um, called Harry Potter as a Sacred Text um, to, to really practice ancient reading practices um, where you don't just read the book as if it's a, a story to enjoy, but a kind of a, a formative text, something with, which has uh, maybe a moral message or it has insight about the lived experience, how, how we want to live our lives, to turn to the Harry Potter books as if it was a sacred mm. text and ask these kind of questions. Um, and, and that ended up growing into a podcast, which, which I've now been doing for about four years. Um, and it's, it's been amazing to see, you know, we didn't have to convince anyone that Harry Potter is a sacred text. It, mm. People were already doing it. <laughs> it's just that we gave them a name and a community to be part of. And um, right. yeah, it's, it's been amazing. Right.
That's that's wonderful. Um, and I, I suppose maybe on the flip side of that, something that just just came up to me was um, what might be some enemies yes. of ritual, and and perhaps what gets in the way of these practices or this process of making things sacred. Well, I mean, the first thing to say, Johnny, is that ritual can be used for evil. I mean, it, it's it, it's a tool, right? Like any technology. Mm. And so, you know, think of think of the Third Reich. Mm. Uh, think think of how. Um, whether it was, you know, the, the ritual of, of lifting up your right arm and saying Heil Hitler, whether it was a ritual of these enormous uh, kind of shows mm. of military strength, um, you know, th- there's all sorts of all sorts of ways in which these, you know, really kind of tools of psychology and design can be put to ill use. So, so that's the first thing to acknowledge. Um, but the things that get in the way, you know, that might be a little bit more within our lived experience day to day. Um, I mean, say hello to your phone. <laughs> it, it is. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it's such a cliche at this point. You know, uh-huh. we all know that we're addicted to it, but what do we do about it? Right. It, it, it's so hard. And I, I'm still mm-hmm. amazed how, you know, when I'm cycling through the city, you know, and I come to a red traffic light and I pull out my phone. And it's just madness that I can't even wait 30 seconds without impulsively, mm-hmm. you know, or going to the loo, right? <laughs> it's just insane. Um, so so, yeah, so our, totally. our, our struggle to be present is obviously at the very, very center of this. Because what makes a ritual something that stands out, you know, and you, you alluded to this earlier, is that you, you bring an intention to it and then you pay attention while it's happening, right? You can't multitask in a ritual context. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, not, you're not in control in the same way. So uh, th- anything that draws our attention away from, from being present is, is, a real, is a real challenge. Um, and Jenny O'Dell's wonderful book, How to Do Nothing, I think is such a good illustration of that. And um, you know, the, the, the thing she mm. talks about, about noticing the nature that we're in, you know, befriending the place that we live in, all of those tools or strategies to help us train our attention, meditation, of course, mindfulness, something that many of us will be familiar with, are all mm-hmm. strategies that can help us, um, you know, bring more awareness and attention when when we are in, in a moment of ritual. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And as I was reflecting on this and some of the rituals that I've been kind of bringing into my own life recently, there was, um, there was something from the Island, which is this novel by Aldous Huxley that mm. I read a while ago. And he, he shares this concept of Pali, which loosely translates to saying grace with your senses, which I absolutely loved. And wow. I've like, that has been kind of our practice before, before dinner time. And, and, and that kind of leads me to wonder whilst you were researching and writing this, have you had any any thoughts or reflections about maybe the difference between intellectual, potentially abstract rituals versus those that are more embodied and connected to our like sense our sensory experience? Oh, I love that. Will you say a little bit more about what that looks like at the dinner table? Yeah, sure. So it's in, instead of kind of saying words for like we are grateful for this for the farmers who provided this food. Yeah, we just kind of have a moment of stillness to, mm. to smell and inhale the food and then for the first mouthful you kind of take it in and you mm. notice the textures and the the flavors of the food and just you really like deeply appreciate it with all of your senses and yeah and then you try and kind of continue that for as long as possible and I, I started doing this during my first vipassana and it was it required like eight days of pure silence and zero input for me to actually slow down enough to be like oh, I can taste the food again. Like, this isn't just like a way to fuel my body. This is like a deeply pleasurable experience. 
So that mm. was like a, a fairly kind of interesting moment for me. Oh, Johnny, that's gorgeous. Absolutely. I'm inspired. Yes, I, I love that. I love that. And I think what you're pointing to is so important because we're such a heady culture, right? We're so focused on the intellect and our, and our thinking brain. Um, and so much of ritual life is about bringing us into our bodies. Um, and it's one of the reasons why a lot of my research mm -hmm. is focused on fitness communities. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in CrossFit mm -hmm. boxes and Soul Cycle studios and um, with communities like the November Project or Tough Mudder, um, looking at how these very, very ostensibly secular places are nonetheless doing very uh, religious things, at least through 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 our research eyes, and by that I mean, you know, people are getting married and 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 uh, having funerals in their CrossFit box. People are looking after each other's pets when the other is going on vacation. They're holding each other accountable. And yeah. um, sometimes they have kind of nearly ritual esque mm. dietary laws, right, about keeping paleo, kind of similar to keeping kosher. Um, the yeah. way in which there's a strong evangelical culture of, you know, my life has been changed by CrossFit, and I want to change <laughs> your life with CrossFit too. Absolutely. Right, all, all of all of those things are, are, are very <laughs> yeah. um, completely. completely. They, they remind us of, of congregational life. Um, I grew up at home. You know, before a meal, we would all hold hands and, and sing a little blessing song, um, which it, it didn't quite get me in in touch as your beautiful ritual does with the food, but it certainly got me in touch with being part of the family. Right, recentering re from whatever was happening during mm -hmm. the day. To this, to the table, to the people around the table, um, and uh, you know, there's there's mm. so many wonderful rituals that that people have, whether it's um, maybe taking a moment of quiet, or or as you said, kind of giving thanks for for people who have made the food possible. But I think the most effective rituals are exactly as you described, that get us out of our thinking brain and into our into our physical experience. So what can you smell? What can you taste? What can you see? Touch? Um, you know, just just a multi sensory experience and so if you're thinking about designing a ritual at home or, or taking a moment that you know you might want to elevate or, or, or deepen somehow to make it into a ritual thinking about how can you make it multi-sensory mm. um is is so smart and I, I think you see that already happening right we, we might want a scented candle or people are buying incense or, or, or burning sage for example um right that, that there's an instinct that we have of of doing exactly that Mm. Totally, totally. And thinking about the um, the kind of the CrossFit example, I think one of the the like hell yes moments I had <laughs> reading was stumbling on the chapter where you said community is built through suffering and laughter, <laughs> and I, I absolutely love that. And it it kind of reminded me of this. There was like a short poem that I I wrote called "The Heart Speaks," mm. and I'll just read it here. It's, it's quite it's quite short. It goes. Joy says, I'm here always, waiting for you to be soft enough to seep into your heart. Mm. Sorrow says, I'm here always, waiting for you to be soft enough to seep into your heart. <laughs> heart says, when my guard is down, I cannot tell the difference between joy or sorrow. Whoa. And with this in mind, I, I, I guess I'm curious, like, and speaking from your own experience, what do you think it is that enables us to really step into or, or have the courage mm. to feel these vulnerable emotions of, of joy and sorrow in our lives? And, and maybe why do we resist it? Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, gosh. Yes. Well, that's a good question, isn't it, Johnny? <laughs> 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 let, let, let me answer. I'll answer on two levels. I'll uh, kind of the, the researcher and then the personal. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the fitness communities mm. are so 
effective because they don't orient themselves around uh, our thinking kind of cynical worldview, right? We're literally broken down by right. physical exhaustion um, until the point where we can't, mm-hmm. you know, we can't stop our heart from being open just because we have, we've got nothing left and we're left in this kind of sweaty. <laughs> no resistance yeah, exactly, left. Exactly. We're just... <laughs> the ego has been pummeled. <laughs> but that, honestly, that is exactly how, how those connections get formed. We see each other in our sweaty vulnerability mm. and, you know, you, you can't pretend mm-hmm. anymore at that point. And I think that's one of, one of the reasons why, you know, these kind of obstacle course events or, or even, you know, things like a, a bar class are so, are so powerful because you get a sense of being part of something bigger connected to other people, um, through this experience of shared physical exhaustion. So that's, that's, that's the kind of first layer, you know, the second layer for me, uh, it, it's, it's so, it's so hard. It is so hard. I, to- I totally get it. And for me, so much mm-hmm. of it about, about, kind of getting to that sense of trustworthiness and heart opening is about trustworthiness. Like to you, is this person going to, you know, not break it? <laughs> and I don't even mean in a romantic context. <laughs> I, I, I'm really thinking about, you know, mentors who you really end up trusting or colleagues that you feel able to, to talk, to talk with honestly, one of the most effective strategies in my mm. life has been having a, what I call a confession group. Um, and so my first confession group was mm. when I lived in Boston. Um, I invited four friends to get together for a, for an evening conversation. They didn't really know each other well. Some, some one or two of them knew each other, but most of them kind of were strangers that, um, I, tr- I, I trusted each of them and, uh, all of us were kind of hungry for a deeper, connection or commitment to our spiritual lives and you know one was a buddhist one was nothing one was an episcopalian everyone was kind of a mix a mishmash and the frame of the invitation was to come and confess something that you were not proud of that had happened over the last month and to give ourselves a space for a spiritual practice whether that was just keeping silent together for some time um maybe singing together uh, one time I, we even kind of did a, a laying of hands, which I'm now obsessed with because it's one of those lovely, um, you know, using the, <laughs> using the senses, using our physical body oh. and feeling someone's hands laid on you in yeah. blessing. Um, yeah. and, and we started to do that every mm. month. We kept it going for about two and a half years until we, we started to move away from, from the same city. And every month we'd get together for Thai food and then, then we'd have our time for confession. And, and for me, that was such an important mm. place where, you know, as someone who's often leading workshops or, 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 or you know, having a conversation like this, which people are, are generously listening to, um, to have a place where you can be completely honest about the ways in which you've absolutely screwed up. And, you, you know, uh, and that might be in your marriage, it might be in your finances, it might be your professional life, it might be in a, a relationship with someone important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and having those kind of containers in which we can safely be vulnerable I think is really, really important. It, mm-hmm. When I look at our kind of landscape now of community and spirituality, this is the thing that I think is most missing is the containers of commitment. There's so mm. much great content out there, but what we're missing are those, those social relationships of commitment to one another, where we show up at the same time every, you know, every, whether it's every day, every week, every month, every year, um, you know, there's, there's trustworthy places um, to which we're all committed. Mm. Yeah, that's that's so true. And I think back to a few years ago, I, I think I was feeling a similar kind of maybe a void in my life at the time. And I took the initiative to start a men's group in Brighton Amazing. where I was living at the time. 
And it was such a just deeply powerful experience that even, even though it was only a couple of hours every two weeks, oh, yeah. just the the sense of lightness that you felt after Isn't that amazing? being in that space and feeling like it, it's incredible and, and just feeling deeply listened yeah. to and heard without any kind of judgment. It was just, it's so powerful. And I, I think, as you say, it's deeply needed in the world. And, and the people that I've been working with recently in these workshops who are often positions of leadership, I think they need it almost more than anyone because they don't feel like they can Absolutely. be vulnerable or they can ask for help and they feel like they need to have all the answers. And it's it's so needed in, in this day and age, even though we have all the content, we just need those spaces yes. to, to share and to be vulnerable. So I, I so agree. Yeah, and I, th I think that the shadow, you know, if you're in leadership and you don't have that, by God, it's going to get exercised anyway, but through your, through your, you know, management channels, through your responsibilities, right? Like it's, it's not like you are, you either do it or you mm -hmm. don't, you're going to do it. It's just a question of where are you doing it? You know, <laughs> and are you doing it responsibly? And yes, yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I think men's mm -hmm. groups and women's groups, you know, you're seeing more and more of these circles, whether it's moon circles, whether it's like LGBTQ circles, whether it's, I, th I think we're hungering for places where we can sit down, um, you know, and there's not an agenda or, a, or, mm. or an action task list to be talked through, but it's literally about sharing and listening together. Um, and it's so easy. I mean, obviously you have to have some skill in holding space, but like it is not rocket science, <laughs> but it's, it's just, it, it's just kind of, we, we don't, we don't have that tradition soaked in our bones that we can pick up on. So you, you kind of feel like you're making up as you go along a little bit, but mm. once you've experienced it somewhere else, I think it's a real mm. gift to offer that to, to your friends and, and acquaintances. And, and often it's great to do it actually not with your best friends, right? Not to do it with the people in your everyday life, but mm -hmm. just maybe one step removed where mm -hmm. you have a little bit more space in the relationship. Um, yeah, I, I love that example of the men's group. It's super powerful. Mm. And I think that for me, for me at least, one of the barriers to setting up that space or kind of committing to the mm -hmm. fortnightly, the meeting is the sense that it's not necessarily productive <laughs> yes. and that maybe there's kind of more important things to, to do in some ways and things that need to be done, which, which is ridiculous, but it's definitely no. something that I think a lot of us feel. Absolutely. And, and that kind of, <laughs> and that kind of brings me to what I really want to talk to you about, which is this, um, like this idea of reinventing the Sabbath. And mm. I honestly can't tell you how many times I've seen like your tweets or your Facebook posts of like work isn't done, but it's time to stop. <laughs> like I'd say maybe 10% of the time I followed suit. And then the other 90% of the time I felt guilty for just like keeping scrolling. <laughs> and continuing to work. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've, I've tried, but I, I haven't been able to like make it this consistent commitment. And it's, it's honestly been a few weeks since I've had like a totally free tech day. So for yeah. someone like myself who like understands the importance of being disconnected, but yeah. also maybe struggles to give myself permission in yes. the moment when there's seemingly urgent things to be done, like what would, what would you say? Like, how, how can you help us? <laughs> Oh, mate, I feel you. I feel you. Um, it's, you know, and, and part, honestly, part of the reason why I post it and I post it on Friday night when it went, you know, when it turns dusk, it's an accountability tool because I don't want to put it away either, you know? <laughs> so I, I absolutely yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> it's, yeah. So, so I mean, the, the context here for those, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, with the idea of a tech Sabbath, most of you will be probably, it, it's the idea of turning off, for me, it's my phone and my laptop. It's really anything that is going to be kind of incoming, you know, whether it's text message or WhatsApp or email, whatever, um, 
to, to really allow myself to build a, a, a container um, of, of quiet. And one of the big inspirations for me, and this, this is honestly one of the things I'd recommend, is to read um, uh, a wonderful Jewish theologian of the 20th century, Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's got this short book called The Sabbath. Uh, and of course, it's written in a Jewish context. Uh, and, and there's so much beauty in this Jewish tradition. Um, but I think anyone, anyone can access its, its wisdom. And one of the key reframes for me about thinking about like a tech break to, to kind of more of a Sabbath idea is that so often we think about a tech break as kind of a time to recharge, right? A, a time in which we can take a breath mm. and, you know, maybe kind of expand our imagination or, um, you know, rest um, so that we can go back when we turn the phone on again and be more insightful, more effective, more mm -hmm. productive. And that is the anathema of a Sabbath. The Sabbath in, 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 in its con mm. concept is about the apex of human experience. The Sabbath is the, um, it's what it's all for. You know, that the, the, it's not that you're resting for the work mm. week, it's that you're working for the Sabbath so that you have that time of, of beauty mm. and delight. I mean, it's literally a Jewish yes. law that you're supposed to have sex on the Sabbath, right? It's supposed to be a time of, of total enjoyment <laughs> and delight. I and yeah, exactly. It's, it's nice. really, it's really about, talk about physical senses, right? Like it's, it's really about embodying that, uh -huh. that experience of joy and connection. And so for me, I, mm. I often think about it as like, um, like it's like a mini holiday, right? It's a little mini vacation. Um, and, and I've ritualized that moment mm -hmm. of turning off the phone and turning off the laptop. I literally hide them in my bookshelf so that I can't see them. So I don't get distracted. <laughs> um, it's been, I've learned from experience. Um, and then nice. I, I light a candle, um, and, uh, I mm -hmm. sing a little song from the same summer camp that I was telling you about before. And that's the moment when I feel, right, that's mm. the outer expression of that inner change, that we've entered Sabbath time. But the funny thing is, Johnny, I did that, you know, I've been married for, for four years. I've been with my husband for seven. Um, it's only maybe a mm. year, a year and a half ago, two years ago, when I asked him, would you come and sing this song with me? Because it felt so... Mm. silly <laughs> it felt so weird to like stand there looking at the night sky being like all right i'll sing this song you know so i totally get why mm. why it feels difficult to kind of cross that threshold so one of the things that's helpful is to imagine mm -hmm. all the other people who are doing it at the same time right it's actually not an isolated thing it's mm -hmm. it's the tradition that not just is shared in this moment but actually goes back generations um and uh, and to then share it, uh, hopefully with someone someone close to you is is a really lovely thing. Um, and and the other thing is to then think about well, what mm. are the activities? What are the things that I will lean into doing during the Sabbath time? So I struggle to journal kind of day to day, but on on a Saturday, that's when I that's when I write in my journal. Um, I look forward to reading, you know, mm. the London Review of Books, which is one of the few printed subscriptions that I have, um, because that's that's a moment when I can really mm. read a long form essay on, on print. Um, you know, so, so that, that there's, there's particular foods maybe that you want to cook or just things that you can delight in during that time that you wouldn't during the rest of the week. And that will help, I think, incentivize that moment mm. of saying, you know, I haven't finished my to-do list, but it's not, it's not about deserving this break once I've done the work. It's actually about kind of maintaining this, this sacred time that it, you know, it's not about whether I'm finished or mm -hmm. not. It's about observing this, this inherent rhythm of, of the body and of the spirit that's needed. Um, and that's what the Sabbath is for.
Mm, I love that. That's really powerful. And yeah, wow. And maybe on the subject of like reframing our relationship mm. with, with time and with rest, could you, could you briefly speak to the idea of the, the spiral of liturgical time, which was oh, a new yeah. concept to me and I imagine would be a new, <laughs> a new phrase for a lot of listeners here. And, and maybe, and what can inhabiting this like grander celestial perspective? Yeah. Oh, Johnny, these are all my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, so often we think about traveling through time as this linear thing, right? It's 2020, next year's 2021, 22, mm. 23. And, and there's this sense of an arrow of progress that, you know, just keeps going. Well, time in a, in a in a, a Christian or in a Jewish context um, and other religious traditions too is is much more circular. So instead of kind of ever traveling forward, you're really journeying over and over again through the same set of festivals. The same, you know, there's Christmas, there's Easter, there's there's Advent, there's Christmas, there's Easter, right? Like you keep going through that same cycle. Um, but the idea mm -hmm. is not that it's the same every time right? Like our lives are changing. And so when we encounter the Passover story, right, the, the, the exodus from Egypt into the, into the promised land, and we tell that story about the Pharaoh and the, and the 10 plagues every year, because our lives are different, we look at that story and we think, well, where's Pharaoh in my life now, right? What do I need to be liberated from this year? Mm -hmm. And so the story is always fresh. And so if you, if you think about mm. traveling through time as a circle, it's not quite a circle because we're still growing, right? Joan Chittister is a wonderful Benedictine nun, talks about this process of moving through liturgical time as a spiritual ripening, right? That we, we somehow we're kind of just growing to mm. be a delicious fruit on the tree every, every season that we, that we go through these, <laughs> through these celebrations. And so it's more of a spiral that, that yes, mm. we're going through the same stories every time, but we are growing, we're changing, we're becoming more fully the kind of person that we want to be when we pay attention to those moments. And it's really important for me that we don't just limit ourselves when we think about our own liturgical calendar just towards, you know, the, the, the traditional celebrations of Eid and Ramadan and, and the kind of traditional celebrations of, of religion, because many of us, you know, don't fit into a particular religious box. I mean, that's the, the context in which the whole book is written, mm -hmm. right? 40% of millennials in America now say they're unaffiliated. Gen, uh, Gen Z, that's going to be even higher. Western Europe, of course, is, is, is much higher still. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we are profoundly disconnected mm -hmm. from traditional religious institutions. But nonetheless, we're seeing great long for connection and meaning and even spirituality. So I'm always really interested in, in helping us identify, well, what are, the, what are the moments in my year that are really meaningful to me? You know, if I was going to make a calendar of all the, the celebrations and the rituals that, mm. were, that were part of what makes me me, I'd have Wimbledon on there. I'd have the, the Met Gala, you know, the first mm. Monday in May. I'd have the first football game for Leeds United in August sure. when the season starts. You know, like all of these things, this Eurovision, uh, right? <laughs> these are all celebrations in my Excellent. life that are massively important. Um, and, and I have real ways to yeah. celebrate them, right? And I have people that I share that with and I have uh, specific things that I do on each of those days or foods that I eat or, or you know, all sorts mm. of things that mark that time as special, as sacred to me. Um, next to Advent and Christmas mm. and Easter still, for sure, um, in my family. So um, mm. when, when we put together our own kind of calendar like that, it, it gives us not just, you know, something to look forward to next month, but I also think it gives us a sense of 
feeling at home in time, right? We, we live in place, mm. but we also live mm. in time. And, and to know that we're going to be traveling through those rituals, we're going to be traveling through that season every year, for me, is a great, great comfort, especially, you know, during quarantine life when, you know, time is the only thing that is changing. So um, it's, it's, it's a way to feel yeah, like you're still completely. traveling and changing. Completely. And, and, and I, I feel like in some ways, the last few months have felt like this, this some form of groundhog day, yeah. where it's like time has kind of come to a standstill. And we have these these almost unchanging daily mm -hmm. routines. And so in, in this time of transition, what might be some some simple starting points for people listening to begin infusing reverence and ritual into what they're already, already doing? And, yeah. and also, like you say, kind of grounding them in this deep uncertain times that we're in and inviting more meaning into into their days yeah well the first thing i always i always think about is just notice what you're already doing because you will already have a richer ritual life than you realize you know whether it's the the, the morning coffee that you make before you check your phone or it's the you know 30 seconds that while the water is boiling you go to the window and you just look outside right maybe it's the the snuggles mm -hmm. with your kiddos before they go to sleep whether it's um, maybe reading a favorite book of poetry before bed, right? Like all of these things are waiting for us to turn them into a ritual moment. And of course, not everything needs to be ritualized, right? A ritual can be a bridge to another way of being. And sometimes we just need to be in this world. Um, and that's that's absolutely fine. But just choosing maybe two or three things that you find yourself doing where you're like, oh, interesting. I'm noticing that I'm doing this because I, I just want a little a little sacred pause, right? Or I'm doing this because I want to feel connected to to my partner. Or I'm doing this because I want to feel part of the universe and remind myself, you know, looking up at the night sky that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm part of something bigger. So the first thing to do is is just notice, and then the second thing is to think about well, how can I make that more meaningful, right? Maybe maybe I light a candle while mm -hmm. I do it. Maybe I take three conscious breaths while I do it. Maybe um, I sing a little song or I mm -hmm. read a poem or I, um, you know, maybe I, I, I think of someone every time I do it. I think of a loved one or someone I admire, um, right? There's all sorts of ways in which we can layer on meaning to these activities that make them into rituals. Um, so th there's no need mm -hmm. to feel like you have to go from zero to, you know, having having a beautiful altar in every room right although you can do that um but but there are there are little steps that once you once you start practicing them for me they just become so joyful and comforting and they kind of remind me of who i am you know in a really important way um i have a little meditation corner in my living room you know i'm in a one-bedroom apartment in brooklyn so it, there's not a huge amount of space but i i put up mm -hmm. six photographs of people who really inspire me. Um, and, and my, my grandparents are in there as well, who've all, who've all passed away. And it's been so nice. I can kind of call it my mm -hmm. elder wall, right? Drawing on that tradition of, of altars in the home. And it's just such a, such a, mm -hmm. a comforting thing to have when I sit there in the morning and I struggle through my 15 to 20 minutes of trying to be quiet. Um, and just to feel like their gaze on me and their, their presence with me, um, mm -hmm. just to, 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 to feel their encouragement and their, um, you know, they're cheering me on uh, in some in some beautiful imagined mm -hmm. way. Uh, you know, j j just to create those those little daily moments of of connecting is, is so lovely. Mm. I love that, and it it makes me think of the importance of of kind of designing our space and our environment yes. 
in to kind of cultivate ritual as well. And <clears throat> I, I guess on that note, I've I've recently stepped into the arena of a new relationship. Mm. And one of the questions that I think we're both exploring is, is how to step into a more intentional partnership. Mm. And we've kind of been experimenting with with mini rituals in this bizarre quarantined life here in here in Colorado. And as I was reading your your chapter in the book on connecting with others, I was wondering if you could speak to some of the like rituals or insights that um, you've you've kind of come across, or maybe some that you have in your own partnership. Yeah, absolutely. So in 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 the chapter, the, the book is kind of structured across four levels of connection: connecting to yourself, connecting with other people, connecting with the natural world, and then connecting with transcendence. And uh, some of the practices that I look at in in that chapter are are working out together, as we've talked about, and eating together. Um, one of the one of the ways in which traditions have kind of marked themselves out as a as a, as a unit is by eating differently from other people. So uh, that's a very effective way. One mm. of my favorite quotes that I use in the book is Nora Ephron, the, the, the screenwriter and director of the best film of all time, You've Got Mail. Um, and she says, a family is any group that eats the same thing for dinner, um, which I think is just such a, a lovely illustration where you know we're, we're so bound by the foods that we eat. Mm. You know, one of my favorite things um, to do when I'm meeting someone for the first time, and I think this is a really powerful exercise to share with a partner, is the, the sharing of a spiritual autobiography. Um, and this is kind of an old, uh, very old practice, but essentially it's telling your life story through the lens of your spiritual or your religious or, or even ethical life. Um, so, you know, what what did you grow up with learning about God? What did you what did you grow up with learning about, you know, what was most important in life? Um, how has that changed as you grew up? How has that been informed by the people you've met, the work that you've done, the places you've been? Um, and it's a, mm. it's a wonderfully uh, intimate and, and beautiful question, I think, to ask one another um, and to really give it time. You know, it can, it can take, you, you can both kind of prepare a little bit about what you want to share um, beforehand and, and really spend 10, 20 minutes Kind of sharing that story without interruption it's a that's a very powerful way i think to, mm -hmm. to develop that the other thing that i might recommend especially you know as you build a home together if you're if you're living together or perhaps starting a family or have kids um is to really think about that ritual mm -hmm. calendar you know what what is it that we want to celebrate as a family what are the values that we want to pass on and and how do we express those with the with the traditions that maybe we grew up with maybe we didn't maybe we want to introduce some new traditions um, I know I don't have children and I, I, I don't know if that will ever happen, uh, but there is one, one tr family tradition that I love to hearing about, which, <laughs> which sounds honestly quite cruel to the child, but I think has long-term payoff, which is <laughs> on their birthday, it, it, the, the, <laughs> the birthday child has to give a speech, uh, has to give like a toast and a speech to the family, uh, about <laughs> On the, uh, oh, well. their birthday. And I'm just like, I freaking love that. I think, I think it's genius. You're, you're being trained for yeah. public, public speaking. Um, but there's, it's also about, you know, it, this is a, my parents are both Dutch. And so in Holland on your birthday, you're the one who brings the cake to share. Very different from in England and here in America, where it's it's more up to your friends or family to kind of organize, oh, organize the cake or the cupcakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I love about mm. that idea is that, mm. you know, you, you, 
yes, it's lovely to get gifts, but it's also your responsibility to contribute to the celebration of your uh, of your of your birthday. And so, um, as well as the cake, I was like, yeah, sure. give us a speech. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah. Um, tell us, tell my, us a little my bit about birthday is coming up soon, so I might. I was going to. Yeah, but tell us a little bit about the the rituals that you've been that you've been experimenting with together. <laughs> so I, I suppose some of them have been um, or simple things like kind of disconnecting at the end of the day and going for a little walk with the dog that we're taking Beautiful. care of here um, through the through the trees, which is really nice. Just getting outside and getting our feet on the mm. ground. Um, I think just having like can, candle lights mm. and maybe kind of quiet music playing in the bedroom and kind of keeping technology outside of the bedroom as much as possible, yeah. I think has been something. Um, and sometimes there's a book that we've been reading from that we kind of read like a, a short chapter mm. to each other before bed, um, which is also kind of nice. And it's just like, I, I think particularly like mm -hmm. book ending the beginning and the, and the end of the day, I think mm -hmm. that's like a very um, ripe time for yeah. ritual. Um, and just, just make, making more spaciousness, I think as well. Um, around the things that we do together so there is more opportunities for to be present and for things to arise yeah. and and, tr and just being intentional about like not cramming our weeks for because we can both <laughs> be busy the whole time like we have no trouble doing that <laughs> um, so I, I think it's it's really like designing the days and the weeks for a greater sense of spaciousness which I think then allows the attention and the um, the intention and the attention to kind of come forth more naturally. Absolutely. So that's kind of what we've been working with. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So switching gears a little bit, one section that kind of caught my eye was when you were writing about psychedelics yes. and there was a line that I think went a spiritual experience <laughs> doesn't, uh, doesn't in itself make for a spiritual life. Mm. <laughs> and I, I, I think for me that, things like ayahuasca in particular has definitely been a gateway to spiritual exploration. Yeah. And it's an area that I've spent a good deal of time thinking about. And, but I, I feel like it's especially um, the integration piece is, is so missing from a lot of these guided yeah. retreats and perhaps through what I was thinking at least was, was through cultivating ritual and reverence. This almost creates a container where we're able to make sense of and, right. <clears throat> and integrate these experience, these insights and these revelations that we receive in the, in the plant medicine space. So given that there's likely to be a growing number of people exploring mm. these these medicines and these substances what might be a starting point for someone maybe returning from one of these retreats to integrate some of these transcendent experiences <clears throat> on a more consistent basis without needing to kind of go back over and over again yeah absolutely so maybe i'll take this in kind of again principles and then and then kind of more practical tips I, I, I'm very mm, hesitant sure. about exactly as you say, the idea that, you know, seeking peak experiences over and over again as the kind of definition of what makes spirituality. Um, I think it's really dangerous to expect that mm -hmm. every time we practice something, we're going to have some sort of major insight or some sort of revelatory, you know, mystical experience. I mean, God willing, you know, that, that happens. Wonderful. <laughs> but, um, that's not what spirituality mm -hmm. is about. I, for me, spirituality is in the mud of everyday life. You know, it's it's really about what what am I putting at the center mm -hmm. of my life? What do I want to live for, and and how do I want to live? So it's not 
it's not jumping on a plane to a gorgeous retreat mm. every month. <laughs> like, um, even if we could, I don't <laughs> think that's that's the goal. Um, mm. So that that's the first thing. Now, mm-hmm. nonetheless, um, within within a life of of daily, you know, rhythms and, and practices and, and a community, um, I do think that there can be a place for for intentionally seeking out, you know, kind of. Uh, um, transcendent experiences like using plant medicine. I'll add one more caution, which is that for most of us who are seeking out things like ayahuasca or or other plant medicines, it's not necessarily part of our cultural heritage. And so I am always a little bit hesitant about a bit of the spiritual tourism that happens. The the idea that, you know, some Mm, other culture mm -hmm. and particularly indigenous cultures are are going to have kind of something that's like, Mm -hmm more authentic or more spiritual or, you know, all, 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 sure, all of these senses of, of exoticizing, yeah. you know, cultures that are already othered in all sorts of mm. ways. I'm, I'm very wary of because in part, we actually lose sight of the, the many profound and beautiful practices that live in our own cultural heritages. So, so that's just, a, you can tell I've got a Don't bee in my know. bonnet about this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, if, you're, if your intention is really to go, I think you're exactly right. That, that, that it's mm-hmm. so important to have uh, a community of people with whom you can integrate the experience. Mm-hmm. And, if it's, and if it's a retreat or an experience that's being led responsibly, that will be built into it. But if it's not, I think it becomes all the more mm-hmm. important that you have not just you know, friends who, who've gone through the experience with, with you to talk about it, but kind of a, maybe an elder in your life or someone mm-hmm. whose wisdom you respect so that when you come home with this massive insight that you should sell all your possessions and move to Florida, um, someone can say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's think about that, shall we? Um, and, and it may be the right decision. I'm not saying it's not, but I do, I do think it's so important for us to, to really talk that through uh, and, and, and have someone, mm. you know, who's, who's there to kind of, as John Wesley would say, watch over us in love, right? That, that, that there's, that there's a, a love and a support, but also an accountability. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really hope people don't just kind of expect that it's some magic button to press and then everything's going to be solved because that's not true. I actually think it can be dangerous for us mm. if, we, if we expect that. But if we mm-hmm. do, if we have a community of trustworthiness, mm. we have elders and, and teachers and, and, you know, maybe just a wise older relative that we trust who we can go to, um, then, then we're setting ourselves mm. up for a bit more success. Um, and I think, I think this is honestly a bit of the mm-hmm. shadow of the kind of growth of the, the wellness industry, shall we say, or even the self-help industry, is that so much of it is focused on our individual mm. experience, right? I mean, even the language, self-care, self-help, mm-hmm. it's very much about me and me. Totally. And, and what we actually need is community totally. help and community care. And, and, and we need those relationships yes. and trust and support. And, and, you know, we can be one another's medicine. Uh, oft, often the, the mm. plant medicines are there just to help us remember that right? To see the interconnection of all things. Yeah. Um, it's not that somehow <laughs> yeah. that is going to give us that the magic tool or like everything we need is already here. It's just, it's our mindset that needs to switch mm. over. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that. That feels really true to me. And what, what comes up is um, actually fairly recently, I've been embarking down this path of becoming a breathwork practitioner. Oh, beautiful. And I think one of the big shifts which is it's so it's so powerful but i think one of the biggest shifts that i've experienced i think speaks to maybe the shadow of 
um, of Western culture of spirituality is that we so often externalize <clears throat> or, or we feel like there is this external thing that will fix us <laughs> or will help us. And by working with yeah. the breath, you realize that like, no, you have everything that you already yeah. need inside your own body. You just need to breathe and you can have these transcendental experiences that are just as profound mm. as anything on ayahuasca or, or mushrooms or anything like that. And it's such a, it was such a reframe for me that like you kind of have all the resources mm. that you need to to heal these traumas or to work through these things that that we feel like we need to mm. and I, I suppose along those lines um one of the one of the other kind of sections that i loved was on being at home in the world mm. and that resonated for me because I've, I've kind of let go of my national identity as a brit in in some yeah. ways and i've spent some time feeling a bit ungrounded being being nomadic and um living in different parts of the world and so I guess I'm curious what might be some rituals or practices that, that help you ground and give you an almost like somatic experience of being at home in, in the place and in the world around you. Gosh, well, I feel like I could learn from you on this one, Johnny. <laughs> I mean, some of, some of the things that, <laughs> that, have, that have helped me, and, and in part, this has always been part of my experience. As I mentioned, my, my parents are Dutch. I was born and raised in England. Um, so I, was, I always had that kind of split of two homelands. And then now I live in America. So at least all the colors on the flags are the same. But apart from that, you know, uh, <laughs> it's just adding adding extra complexity. <laughs> I mean, one of the ways in which we can feel connected mm -hmm. to the place that we're in is the, is the practical knowing of its history. Um, you know, I, I think especially learning about um, mm -hmm. indigenous uh, peoples who've lived in the place, if you're living in, if you're living in land that, that has been settled or colonized, that's a, a really powerful way. Um, I mentioned Jenny O'Dell, mm -hmm. Odell's book earlier, uh, her kind of continuation of the, of the, the theme of bioregionalism. So getting to know, you know, the plants or the animals that are native mm -hmm. to the place in which you're in. It's another wonderful way, um, which I am still only just beginning. Um, but the, you know, I think one of, one of the really powerful ways that I write about in the book as well is kind of drawing on Joanna Macy's work where she talks about these different paradigms in which we can mm. be in relationship with, with the world around us. You know, one way to look at the landscape mm -hmm. is to see it as a resource, right? It's there for us to be shaped and used and uh, mined and burned and whatever else. And uh, very quickly, we feel very alienated from, from land, from the, from the natural world. And she, she takes us through kind of different, couple of different paradigms. But one of the, the, the most effective paradigms that she ends with is the idea that there is no separation between the world and us, right? That we are the world. Um, and there's some wonderful environmental activists who have talked about, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to save the rainforest, but I am the part of the rainforest that is protecting itself. And so if you can, I mean, literally just going mm -hmm. for a walk and when you see, a, you know, maybe it's a lovely flower or a beautiful tree or, or even like a, a weed, you know, growing between the pavement, saying to yourself, right, I am, mm -hmm. I am the tree. And maybe you can describe what the, what the tree is feeling, right? I can feel wind through my branches or closing your eyes and, and trying to imagine yourself mm. into the experience of this little weed. You know, I, I, I am tough. I'm growing up through the concrete, you know, I'm stronger than people think. And, and it's, I mean, it sounds obviously <laughs> not so, but what's wonderful is that if you literally, if, if you say it three or four times out loud, you're suddenly like, I am the tree. I am the weed, you know, and, <laughs> and it's, it's, it is, it is just the remarkable capacity of our brain for empathy and, and, 
um, understanding mm. um, that, you know, and, and, and there's beautiful religious practices drawn from this. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, 13th century, no, he was later. St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, came up with this idea of imagining yourself into the gospel stories. So rather than just reading about what Jesus was doing, he said, no, you have to imagine yourself as one of the fishermen, you know, going out with Jesus onto the sea. And you have mm, to so powerful. You have to feel the, the salty yeah. wind and you have to imagine the fish that you're catching. It's the same principle, right? But now you're doing yeah. it with the natural world around you. And, and suddenly, I think mm. that's a, a very, very powerful way, as you say, you can very quickly feel at home wherever you are mm. Mm, that's so beautiful it, it reminds me of um i was reading this like interpretation of the gita and and the guy who was writing the book was saying like imagine yourself as these characters and like mm. what what would you do if you were in their position and that's the real way to experience the insights and the lessons from it yes um that's that's amazing so um before we before we wrap up I have four kind of semi rapid fire questions. <laughs> All right, bring it on. Uh, the, <laughs> the answers don't necessarily have to be have to be rapid, but the first question is: What was one lesson or, or teaching that you've taken away from working with the on being team over the years? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, oh God. Okay, now I need to think. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe the, the biggest the biggest thing that I took away um, in terms of the you know the beautiful podcast is just how hungry and ready so many of us are for the kinds of conversations that get to the soul whatever, however we conceive of that, right? That, uh -huh. that get underneath the everyday, whether it's the news cycle or the, yeah. the you know, whatever, whatever we're experiencing. My sense is it's very easy to, to tell a story of secularization over the last couple of hundred years. But my understanding of, of religious yeah. change is that it's a, it's, it's a shift away from the traditional institutions towards all sorts of other spaces, whether that's the workplace, whether it's the home, whether it's this you know, range of new communities, which include fitness groups and maker spaces and grief and loss groups and um, you know, sobriety communities, all, all sorts of places where spiritual things are now happening. Um, and that when, when we find someone who can, you know, like so many people who've been interviewed on that show, who can speak to our experience on a spiritual level. I think so many people are hungry and, and, and ready for that. Um, so not, not to be afraid, I think, of the, of the spiritual element of our lives. Mm, that's a great answer. Yeah, and so true. <clears throat> um, okay, question number two. What is your favorite Harry Potter scene <laughs> and why? <laughs> okay, well, this reveals me as the Slytherin that I am, but it's <laughs> honestly, I, I've always loved at the very end of book four. So, this is um, the, the uh -huh. moment when Harry has been transported uh, after the Triwizard tournament with Cedric, and it's a trap. And Voldemort is there and he needs some of Harry's blood. It's all very intense. And what happens is that Voldemort, this kind of arch evil nemesis uh, of, of Harry Potter, um, becomes re-embodied. And there's, <laughs> there's something that I find really obviously mm. frightening about this moment, but it's also really clarifying because mm. so far in the books, and this is really in the middle point of the books, um, 
so far in the books, Voldemort has been this kind of shadow, this, this unembodied form that is everywhere and nowhere. And now for the rest of the series, mm -hmm. there's a central like target that Harry has to, um, mm -hmm. I mean, take down by, by destroying all the Horcruxes, right? The, the pieces in which he split his soul. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I'm still not quite sure mm -hmm. why I love this moment so much, but I think it's about clarifying purpose that it's about mm -hmm. locating a, mm -hmm. a particular mission and saying like this, this is now my life's work. Mm -hmm. um, so I, other people have, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, the mirror of error said is beautiful, right? When Harry sees his parents for his first time, when he, when he, says to the mm. snitch at the very end of book seven, you know, I'm going to die, I'm ready to die. And it opens, that's what it's been waiting to hear. There's so much poetic mm. beauty in, in those books, but that, that moment of kind of encountering your nemesis, I don't know, there's something about it that mm. just... <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, some, there's something really powerful about like, it, it's almost like the moment when you bring your shadow yes. out into the light and you That's can what it is. see it and, and examine it and like step into yes. it. <laughs> yes, exactly, Johnny. And I, and I think I, maybe it's because I have such an enormous shadow that it's particularly important to me um, because because it's just like, it's real, you know what I mean? Like uh, Harry has for so long has, has talked about mm -hmm. this threat and, and it's, you know, and he's gonna be ignored for, for a whole book through, throughout book five, no one will believe him. Um, and, and I think maybe, maybe mm -hmm. that's exactly it. It's about acknowledging the truth of, of the parts of Harry that have some of the same impulses that, that Voldemort has, you know? And that's what he's worried mm -hmm. about throughout the books. Right. It's like, am I like him? And of course the truth is yes, that he chooses Hopefully. to be different. Yeah. Mm, so wise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it. <laughs> oh, that's this is this is great. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Question, question three. Um, and this is this was uh, submitted from our mutual friend Victoria. Oh. Um, she was curious. Who is who is your go-to inspiration person or account? Huh. There's so many. Honestly. Um, well, I guess I, I should think of someone on Twitter who is, oh man. Right now I'm really enjoying, and this is like the most non-spiritual answer I can, <laughs> I can probably give you, but I'm really inspired by, um, <laughs> oh God, what's his last name? Hang on, Packy McCormack, there it is. Right now I'm really enjoying- Oh, Packy McCormack, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really enjoying Packy McCormack's mm -hmm, writing. Me too. You, you you introduced this a few a few months ago. He's, oh, I'm he's so fantastic. glad. Yeah, he's just, I think he's so creative <laughs> and he's he's really kind of a business strategist more than anything mm. else, but I love his use of pop culture and he always makes me think about new mm. opportunities and, and ideas in a, in a really lovely way. So uh, yeah, shout out to Packy. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, his newsletter is fantastic and he started the Not Boring Club. That's right, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 he'd um, been working yeah, in the startup fantastic. space and looked at his life and he was like, Either I'm working or I'm talking about work. Oh God, I've become boring. I want to be not boring. <laughs> so that's what he did. <laughs> so so good. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, fourth question. Uh, I I know, or I, I spied on you on Facebook, and I saw that you commissioned four friends yeah. to write music that was inspired by reading your book and. I would like to know how did their how did their cre creations make you feel mm. in four words? In four words, oh Johnny, 
Huh. Four words. Yeah, you only get four <clears throat> words. Okay, all right. Let me. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go with what comes to my head. Honored. Um. Uh. Inspired. Um. Jealous. <laughs> They're so talented. And um, thrilled. I mean, I, I was just so. I was so touched. And this is always what happens. One of the mm. definitions of a sacred text that I love is when it becomes generative, right? When it leads other people to create new things based mm -hmm. on, based out of the text. And so just seeing what they saw mm -hmm. through their own eyes and through their own experience and how they turned that into music was so touching. Maybe that's my fifth word, touching. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Amazing. Well, this has been a freaking pleasure and I want to be respectful of your time. So where could listeners learn more about your work and the Sacred Design Lab and obviously order a copy of the book that will be out by the time this airs? Yeah, the book is called <laughs> The Power of Ritual and uh, you can find it at powerofritual.org, which will send you to all sorts of links. Uh, it's out in Australia, the UK, the US uh, and Holland and soon also in Brazil. So there you go. Um, and oh, wow. um, yeah, you mm -hmm. can learn more about my work at sacred.design. That's my, uh, my work with Sacred Design Lab. And if you want to check out the Harry Potter podcast, it's called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And uh, thank you so much for having me, Johnny. Honestly, I'm, I'm so thrilled that we got to, got to chat and I'm such a big fan of everything you create in the world. So thank you for, for hosting these conversations for all of mm. us. I appreciate that. And I'd like to close with the Rilke line that I know you're probably familiar with. Mm. And the line is, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, <clears throat> what is the question that you feel like you're living yourself right now? And what is one question that you might leave our listeners with? Mm. What are the traditions I want to continue and what are the traditions I want to let go of? Hmm. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.